Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. On this episode of Shoulder of Orion, we are presenting part two of our interview with film historian and author of Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner, Paul M. Salmon. Please join us as our conversation has already begun. I'm glad you liked the uh, Sean interview. I thought it was a groundbreaker. Oh, yeah. yeah, she's my favorite character of the film. I mean, oh, I, and she gives she, one of the best performances. Oh, she heartbreak. And I, I, even with 2049, I mean, my favorite scene is the scene where she returns, and you can just feel her throughout mm. the whole film. You feel her. You feel her legacy. At least I do. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. I had some serious problems with the technical. Did you aspect of that? I hated it. I really? thought it looked as. Uh, Uncanny Valley is the the Princess Leia shot at the end of. I thought it was interesting. So so you would say because I do this comparison often, you think then that um, the Gramoff Tarkin rebuild that they did for was fine was better. Oh yeah, agreed. Interesting. Well, Peter Cushing and Peter Cushing, you know, it's it's odd that he would be forgotten for the most part. But Peter Cushing was one of the great English actors. And, yeah. you know, he made such an impression in all the Hammer films and the science fiction films he did and the horror films he did. And then at the end of his life, it was one of his last roles. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, he had cancer and all that. Uh, but I thought what they did with him in that was just fabulous. That was incredible work. Yeah. But Especially then, with the shot light and darkness I didn't and all think, the talking. I didn't think Sean worked, uh, the Sean Young, uh, really? Simulka worked at all. Really? I found it very off-putting. I didn't, I felt like it. And I'm not the only one. Yeah, I know. I know that's that, true. One of it's our a, partners, it's Patrick, a very polarizing thing, I think. Patrick, who's didn't, a full part, who's, It didn't look like her, I thought. I mean, really? there was one shot, but when he when she started to, you know, like get emotional, you never saw Rachel do that. And it, it also looked fake. See, I, thought, Interesting. I was able to suspend disbelief in a sense. Those, what you're talking about, I see that as well, but it actually sold me on it because I put myself in Deckard's shoes and I was thinking about, and of course, you know what happens at the end of the scene. And, you know, he's trying to disconnect from her. And I think those little details, if they really happen, are part of what allowed him to disconnect. I also thought, I mean, like, that's not narratively hard. speaking, it was more of a stunt than an integral part of the narrative. I thought it was, I mean, you know, they bring her in, she has five words to shoot her in the head. Right. And you, he knows that it's just a replica of a replica. Right. You know? And so what's he supposed to do? Like, get all weepy? She's been dead for like fucking, you know, forever. But see, here's my, yeah. here's, here's Well, let's, like, we should put this on. Oh, you know, it, we're, we're recording. On. We're, we're on. Recording. We're on. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, my. Whatever I said, I, I completely refuse. <laughs> do well, not go on this show. Don't trust these guys. They turn it on when you don't know. <laughs> well, what I, my argument is just that kidding what if rachel's memories are in her bones what if that's how they record memories as replicants so what if that replicant was for all intents and purposes rachel of course it's different rachel it's not the rachel 
but that's really what sold me. And I see those differences in that model too, for sure. I mean, it doesn't look exactly like Sean Young, but her eyes were Sean Young's eyes. And I felt like she had that, will you love me look to her that Sean Young had yeah. in the original. And that's what grabbed me about it. I just thought it looked fake. Interesting. Okay. Let's... I, I didn't. And, but, but what was interesting, um, uh, and again, uh, tonally, is the fact that this was supposed to be the bribe that would, you know, make uh, Deckard come over to, you know, um, Wallace's uh, team. The dark and, side, so uh, to speak. Yeah, and it's such a it's such a foolish, you know, thing to do because we've already seen two motion pictures of Rick Deckard's character who is hard-bitten, street smart, not one to be easily fooled. And, you know, he knows that this is just like, you know, candy. And, uh, oh, by the way, when she said her eyes are green, that's a gaffe. That's a mistake. Her eyes weren't green. Her eyes are brown in the film. The green uh, confusion comes from a close-up of the Voight Camp uh, eyes, which were not her eyes anyway. I, I agree with that. I have my own theory about this, though, that with the attention of de to detail that Villeneuve's team put into everything, and we talked to the team, the lead that did the visual effects for that sure. scene. Sure, no, I know. I, it's a wonderful one. You guys should listen to that, how they did uh, Rachel's uh, reappearance in 2049 on Shoulder of Orion. It's a fascinating episode. Thank you. Uh, so I don't buy that they made a mistake. I actually think they did it on purpose, meaning that Wallace and the corporation made a mistake in recreating Rachel. Or I'm sorry, they actually recreated her correctly. Decker was trying to find an out to be like, I don't want this. She's this isn't exactly Rachel. Right. This isn't right. And he needed something to go on to be able to convince them. Why. And so he just told them her eyes were green and he walked you don't, away. You don't think being kidnapped, beaten, taken against your will, back to a corporation that was even worse than the one that originally screwed you over in the first film is enough of a reason for him not to cooperate without them marching out some like half-assed replica, you know, <laughs> someone who's been dead for a while. Yeah, but I, yeah, this is a polarizing issue. I just uh, Some people are thrilled to see it. Um, I just saw it as a stunt. Uh, I... I, you know, I've seen better, you know, sure. uh, technically uh, done. I'm glad that, you know, they reworked her back in. Mm -hmm. But all I could think of is at the same time, well, you know, if they have these templates, which, by the way, I didn't think they did. I think that, you know, it's never really made explicit how the replicant process works. Right. And it's always been film. left open. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, you could say, yeah, you know, the memories were in the bones, but I think it's more if you want to just, and this is just hypothetical, of course, but that, you know, they use the bones, the DNA and the bones to, you know, whatever process they have to recreate her. And um, it just, it, it rang false to me. And, you know, and uh, I also had a problem. Now, uh, this is me nitpicking on 2049. I didn't think that Jared Leto had the necessary weight uh, to be a sinister uh, corporate successor to Tyrell. Hmm. I don't fault the performance, and I don't fault his dedication, you know, with being essentially blind on set. It it just didn't work. It, it, it you know, I mean, Joe Torquell is so reptilian and so arrogant and so godlike. And, you know, in just a few scenes, he just like, whoa, you know. Yeah. And Jared gets a lot more screen time. And he's a wonderful actor. Mm -hmm. You know, props to him, man. He's very good. And he's also got breadth. But in that particular instance, I didn't think for whatever reason it worked. 
I thought the Robin Wright character was a little too one note, except for the scene when she's getting drunk uh, with Kay, and you know the suggestion is uh, what's going to happen if I finish this bottle, right. and he goes, "Time to go," you know, which I thought was interesting. And but even then, I remember thinking, well, this is the moment that they put in. It's it's, it's kind of to humanize her, and but it stands out from the rest of her, you know, hard ass, you know, successor to you know. Emmett Walsh in the first one because there are a lot of echoes of characters right sure. from the first one right you know and uh, Batty is of course love you know and uh, which is hilarious because she's a natural blonde and they dyed her hair brunette right you know which is you know I mean you know why not you know why not have a blonde in there you know well, or I guess that was too obvious well and you made mention earlier to um what to expect when you're going to see 2049. And, and I want to move back to 2019 just because we'll, we'll get to 2049. We, sure. we certainly want to talk more about Rachel and everything. Um, but I think that you talked about how could they duplicate the original. And, you know, I was, when you said that, I was thinking, and why would you try? And, yes. you know, uh, the people who see 2049 as a positive, which certainly Jamie and I do overall. Oh, I do too. I love the film. Right. And, Don't get me wrong. Sure. And so I think that that whole paying homage to the original while not copying it is a really fine line to walk right oh, of course. from everything from the soundtrack to everything i mean how do you follow up vangelis's original oh, soundtrack right yeah. and that's a really difficult job so and they were wise not to try right but they also captured a certain spirit you know of and, course uh, you know zimmer and uh, uh wolfish wolfish yes thank you i can never pronounce that correctly um I thought did a fine job, mm-hmm. and particularly you know that uh, harsh like metallic rang that yes. they have, you know, uh, which is most prominent, you know, when Kay attacks the uh, spinners at the end, so ruthlessly and so efficiently, and so right. you know, and you really see, oh, you know, this guy really is a killer, you know, and I mean that uh, there's there are you know I sent a copy of the latest issue of Future Noir, which by the way came out in September. And as the third revised edition, still in print, and uh, I am working still on getting the ebook out. Uh, it was almost ready to go, and then because of personal issues, moves and things like that, mm-hmm. going into the hospital for a short time, um, it's been delayed. But it's still, it's close, okay? And it's still going to happen. We so. can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm going to get rid of it. Um, the... Uh, there are so many good things in 2049. And uh, I remember when I first saw it, I went, oh, I appreciate the fact that they decided to go to both be, uh, and to make it a genuflection to the original, but at the same time to make it its own animal. And to, at the same time, you know, explore issues that were already brought up, to invert some issues, to play around subtly with the old, you know, is Deckard a replicant or not? Um, there's some interesting things that I haven't really noticed a lot of people pick up on. I'm sure you guys have. But, you know, one of the first things when Kay goes home and he's with Joy, uh, he puts a Frank Sinatra song on. Right. And then later when you're in Vegas and uh, what does Deckard have? He's got a Frank Sinatra song. Right. You know, ooh, ooh, replicant, uh, replicant type of thing. <laughs> and they both have similar lines like, I know, I know what I am. You know, to, you know, and that's like, yes. mm, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, but at the same time, they they were so smart to still leave it ambiguous because I think, you know, yes, you can say he is and yes, you can. 
And uh, on the original Blade Runner, Ridley began the project with saying flat out, it's ambiguous. He told me that a hundred times. I don't want to say yes mm-hmm. or no. And then as shooting progressed, I think he became much more privately uh, he t- privately tilted towards the yes he is. Yeah, let's let's cl- we'll we'll close out with that for this section on 2019 because I definitely have a question for you without asking the usual decor up questions, which I don't want to do because I know we've talked you know you've talked about it plenty, and so has everyone that has done interviews, but. I'm going to force us to come back to 2019 because I, I definitely want to delve deeper into this a little bit later, but um, we'll, we'll probably shift some of the recording around to go back to this. But um, I want to ask you a couple more specific questions about uh, 2019. And so um, I, I just read the extensive 2002 interview that you did with uh, Netrunner for uh, BladeRunnerMovie.com, which uh-huh. was really exceptional. I mean, it took me an hour to get through it on the plane. It was, uh-huh. it was, it was, it was No, it was really great. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Net really. It was, yeah. Yeah, it was enlightening. Um, you talk a lot about Blade Runner's vision, the original, uh, of the future and how its predictions panned out, pollution, racial demographics, urbanization, cloning, etc. cetera. Um, and we've also seen more predictions in pop culture since the turn of this century in movies like Ex Machina, the Westworld series, um, mm-hmm. Moon. Uh, the Annihilation. B- Annihilation, yes. Uh, the building of Sophia, you know, the, the real-life android. Um, and the- have you heard about the Department of Defense computers that did the simulation uh, war games between themselves and did not, you know, report it? In other words, they it was almost no, a singularity moment. Yeah, wow, there was like crazy. There was something that they caught the two computers that were talking to each other and oh, were actually wow. doing like runs that no one knew they were doing them secretly. I this is true. Something about they had to unplug some computer. I don't think it was that story because it was, it was like, it was dangerous. So they turned it off. Yeah. Skynet yeah. is just around the corner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the Boston dynamics robots from the beginning to what they have now. Those are, I mean, those are creepy with how good those things are at running around and opening doors. Take and, it down to the street level. Jack in the boxes, McDonald's. They're not going to have people in there. Right. For much right. longer. Mm-hmm. Why? You know, the cooks maybe, but even mm-hmm. that can be automated, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you two questions based on those things. One is let's give a 16 year update to kind of, you talk about, <laughs> you talk about that trend and sort of what, um, you know, Ridley and Submit and what they kind of predicted correctly um, and now that we're 16 years further with, we know with technology, how fast things move that 16 years makes a huge difference. So I kind of wanted to ask a two part question. One is how now in 2018, how have you seen that trend continue? And then back to sort of robotics and androids, you know, where would you predict our timeline towards sort of, you know, in a certain, to a certain extent, a real life Nexus six style human, you know, moving forward? Because I, at this point it seems like it's a matter of, is it 50 years, 100 years, 200 years? But it seems like it's going to be... They can clone a human being right now. Right. And the only reason they're not doing it is because they... And, you know, frankly, who knows if they haven't, you know? True. There's a lot. And, and, and by the way, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I grew up in the U.S. government. My father was in military intelligence, worked for CIA, and also what was called NCSU, was Naval Counterintelligence Support Unit. So I saw all of that up close of FBI, police you know, uh, foreign governments. And let me tell you, um, (laughs) none of these bureaucracies can get it together, you know, to really get, you know, I mean, uh, uh, this this is a digression, but I mean, but but essentially, when I say, from my point of view, uh, that I think um, the reason why we are where we are is 
as you say, technology has become a self-generating and self-aware tool. And it is taking us into areas that no one had predicted. Now, yes, 2019 did, as you say, talk about things like cloning, talk about the ethics of, you know, uh, you know, Dolly the sheep, you know, mm-hmm. uh, do- uh, uh, many of those animals become sick and, uh, you know, and uh, have <laughs> almost got four-year lifespans in them. Although Tyrell <laughs> put them in, you know, as like a planned obsolescence, so right. you had to have a new one every four years. That was pretty obvious. Um, which they do now. Now there's one right right away, right? Now you could, I have a 1998 CRV that I bought back in the day that has 300,000 miles on it and try to find one of those now, mm-hmm. you know? And so a lot of the things that Blade Runner accurately forecast, uh, yes, they are with us. But it's always, uh, uh, it's always a fool's game to try to intelligently or completely forecast the future. It's impossible because mm-hmm. there's too many random elements at work. Uh, I think artificial intelligences have been an ongoing concern of Ridley Scott since as far back as Alien. And I think there's a through line in every single science fiction movie he's made. Sure. He's terrified of them. No, I'm, I'm honest. Yeah. I think he's terrified of them. Yeah, I mean, David is... And, and, and oh, David yeah. is scary. Scary. Yeah, and I say what you will about them, and a lot of people have. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, find, I find Prometheus and uh, Covenant both fascinating and aggravating uh, in almost equal measure. I don't think they're total failures like so many people have said. Right. If I do have uh, an overriding objection to, uh, to those is that Ridley is, I think the mystery is always better than the solution. So if you try to explain something, you're like, you know, what, who are the engineers? Who is in the, you know, the space drive? Why? Right. You know, you've just taken away one of the most intriguing aspects of the thing. But I understand, you know, I mean, he's the guy, you know, it's, uh, he's put most of his life into it. And he wanted to actually, you know, he was very upset that he wasn't able to actually direct 2049. And he had thought he would. But then, the de- as he told me, the deal took a while to come together. And uh, he had a choice. He said, well, I can either go with, you know, continuing with the alien, you know, which I really want to get back into. Or I can wait for 2049. And really, he's not a guy to wait. So that's really what happened. So if there had been a better or a, a faster process in, in place to get him on board for 2049 as a director, he would have done it. He was he was hot, but he also uh, is very much uh, behind uh, uh, Denny. Um, <laughs> one of the first things uh, I did hear from various people involved with the first film, uh, second film, twenty forty nine, is too long, and I think that's probably slightly fair estimation. I mean, I I wallow in it, you know, but. I hate the orphanage scene. I think that's extraneous. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I like the trash mesa, you know, when he gets harpooned and all that. And, you know, you get to see him in action and, you know, you find out that there's... But then again, all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh God, it's Mad Max time, you know, and I'm seeing... I, I'm seeing echoes of other pictures and the Dickensian orphanage that Kay goes to to find out, you know, the records of his... Look, you know, all of that was to get to a book. <laughs> you know, they, and and I thought Lenny, you know, James was kind of thrown away in that mm-hmm. and it just didn't work for me. It seemed extraneous, you know, mm-hmm. filler. Um, so I could have easily excised that. And there's some other things as well. So to me, it's slightly too long. Uh, it doesn't have the urgency of the other one. But then on the other hand, it's not the other one at all. It's, it's a meditation, right? And what's interesting is how it's inverted so many of the things. Because in Blade Runner, 
you've got a, is he a human who thinks he's a human or is a replicant? And then in 2049, is he a replicant who thinks he's a human? Right. So there's like some very clever and interesting twist on that. So anyway, uh, 2019, yes, it did forecast uh, quite a bit, you know, in our future, but it also got a lot wrong. Where's Atari? Where's Pan Am? <laughs> right. You know, the curse of Blade Runner replacement. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. You know, companies go out of business. Big deal, mm -hmm. you know. But um, also the fact that, uh, you know, the Asian, uh, you know, uh, element uh, that was so uh, obvious in 2019 was uh, of the moment because the uh, Japanese uh, were ascendant in the world economy and through the 80s became more so. And so that was just at the moment, you know, a fairly, you know, rational, you know, projection. Yeah, okay, there's you know, going to be more of this there. Well, of course, as we know, the whole Japanese economy imploded. Uh, in another recession, I've lived through four of them now. This mm -hmm. is the fourth, I mean, 2008, you know, and, it's, and there's another one coming, by right. the way, folks. Be prepared. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, so they got that wrong. Uh, and, you know, but it's interesting because the Asian element's still there because now it's Chinese, you know, so in a way, you know. Right. <laughs> um, but it's it's hard to it's hard to predict these things. I just saw a wonderful... 70 millimeter screening of 2001 down in San Diego. And oh, wow. I was there in 1968 in San Diego when it opened in April and saw it. And uh, uh, in Cinerama, and the original Cinerama, which they don't have the screens anymore for, by the way, uh, the Cinerama screen in San Diego was twice the size of the ones that you see in the big screen theaters mm. today. And mm. they had a curve to them, they have yeah. a flare on the end of them. But that one in. Uh in Hollywood here, yeah, that at the uh, pretty yeah, curved too. yeah, exactly the one at the the Hollywood Dome, yeah, the the Cinerama Dome. Um, but uh, now there's a very good example of Stanley Kubrick being such a perfectionist and being so intelligent and such an intellectual and going in every direction you can think of, bringing in every technical aspect of what was then going to happen. They took. A projection of the future based on where NASA was in 1964, 65, 67. And all of the stuff that you saw in there was a logical progression of where we were then. All of that could have happened, mm. but what we didn't know is that once people landed on the moon, no one cared that NASA started to dry up in terms of funding, that it became politicized, and that you know this great American adventure, having been there at that period of time, which there was a whole completely different spin on it. So you know he was projecting, you know, in uh, 2001, he was projecting, what, uh, about 32 years in the future, 33 years in the future, and uh, he, on what was then available. Same thing that Ridley did you know, and his design teams uh, in Blade Runner with a lot of fanciful elements because Ridley was also bringing in stuff from heavy metal. Let us not forget that Ridley Scott has many times said that Blade Runner is an adult comic book. And, mm -hmm. you know, and the long tomorrow story, of course, with Dan O'Bannon, yeah. you know, and Mobius and, and uh, what was his name? Uh, 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 Public nose instead of private eye. Pete Club. <laughs> no, confidential nose instead of private eye. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was hilarious. You know, And I knew Dan, too. I worked with uh, Dan on Return of the Living Dead and, uh, you know, and uh, was around when he was uh, doing Alien and Dark Star. And, you know, so. There's a similarity between um, 
the Watchmen. I don't know if you've seen. I'm sure oh, you've of seen course. Them. Oh, and I remember the when the Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, uh, you know, when those graphic novels came out, man. Yeah. You know, I it read feels all so of much those. Like Blade Runner. Oh, everything feels yeah. like Blade Runner. Yeah. See Ghost in the Shell, the yes, one with Scarlett O'Hare. You know, I mean, not Scarlett O'Hare. Scarlett <laughs> Johansson. I'm getting tired, folks. Um, no, and also, what was the other one I just saw that was so obviously? Oh, um, oh, God. It was just out. And, uh, uh, Altered Carbon on Netflix? Altered Carbon or is mute? one. Or Mute. There's so many. I mean, you know. Uh, and they're, they're pale comparisons. Of course. There's moments where you're like, okay, that's a little bit of Blade yeah. Runner, but yeah. this ain't Blade Runner. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people that work in the business now were raised on Blade Runner, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know. And Christopher Nolan, by the way, was the guy who restored 2001 to yes. 70 millimeters. Yes. Yeah. And I have seen 2001 probably as often as, if not more, than Blade Runner. Frankly, I think that 2001 is the greatest science fiction film ever made. Now, that may sound like heresy, you know, from somebody who's Mr. Blade Runner, but there's still, to my way of thinking, nothing that is complex, as provocative, and deals with the central God question and the central human science fiction question, are we the only ones out there, Mm -hmm. than 2001. Mm -hmm. And it's an oddly, for Kubrick, optimistic picture because Cooper right. was not exactly dark yeah 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 well he you know he 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 saw humanity as you know he did he used to be a photographer for the post you know I mean mm-hmm. look magazine when he was barely out of his teens and he saw you know like all the he saw all the street crime and you know he was in human interest stories so he was exposed to all that very early on and uh, you, you know his uh, IQ uh, rating was off the charts, mm. and he didn't even get an IQ test until much later in his life. Total total failure in school, just like Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott did very badly in school, but he is a marvelous artist. You know, same thing with Kubrick. He's you know a genius photographer, still photographer, and then yeah. And anyway, but there are a lot of parallels between Stanley Kubrick's 2001 and Blade Runner and Prometheus. They're in there. Yeah, no doubt. I'll, I'll take a second since we were talking about Prometheus and Covenant to acknowledge. I forgot to do it at the beginning, but I'd like to acknowledge Patrick, who's our uh, co-host. Who's in, he lives in Boston, so he couldn't make the trip out today. But he's uh, a, sorry, Patrick. He's a big fan of Covenant, and uh, Jamie and I are. I mean, we, there's certain things about the movie that we certainly appreciate, especially the first 45 minutes. But there are things about the story that we don't like and think yeah. don't hold up, and so we we often have arguments about it. So yeah, um, I know what you mean. Yeah, he and would, Prometheus seems to be you know like really you know not everyone's favorite right i rather like it i, mean, I really like prometheus and i love I, some ideas in it for sure i think you know that there are moments of absolute absurdity and character stupidity yes i mean you've yes. got the world's greatest cartographer who gets lost right yeah. you right. have the world's greatest collection of scientific minds who meet in the hold of the prometheus and i'll talk like garage mechanics right i mean you know and the oh, biologist who reaches out to touch some yeah, alien yeah, creature as if it was a puppy yeah i mean yeah exactly <laughs> and also you know but they're interesting no one has ever well some people have but is charlie's there on human right yeah, no we, we talked about that before. yeah and we she have says, discussed she it. says calls him father just like you know yeah. david and also she puts david up against a wall right Yes, oh, we. Uh, yeah, she does. We talked about that effortlessly, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And she's such. She's so good in that movie. She is. She is. She's one sure. of my favorite characters in that film. She feels the most real. Yeah, and maybe she's not. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, so that one shot in Prometheus of the starfield and deep space, and you yes. just see this chip diamond just 
silently going across. I told Relay, I said, Jesus, that's beautiful. Yeah, there was some beautiful And when the ship lands, you know, and that's CG. And, you know, that's like the best of, you know. And just, I mean, there are moments in that movie that are just magnificent. But again, my big problem with it is that it wants to strip away all the layers of... Mm -hmm. You know, doubt. And I see. A, I see a lot of it from modern audiences. A lot of it, I think, is production and directors getting chipped away at a little bit, where they're giving into these modern audiences. Because, uh, for example, Inception, which is one of my favorite, one of my movies. favorite movies yeah. ever, and I think it's, I think that's one of his most effective ones. Oh yeah, and and so tight. I think it's so. Yeah. just well done and and you know again it's one of those things where you watch it for two hours but then you could talk about it for four hours the philosophy can be expanded and it's got some a bunch of different really interesting ideas disguised as sort of a popular sci-fi action movie when really there's a lot of deeper concepts in it and um yeah and, and christopher nolan is just a magician of this and and i thought that the ending of that movie was absolutely spectacular is that top the, gonna topple when but when they cut right the exact <laughs> yeah, millisecond the when they cut it they yeah. give you the wobble and then yeah. they cut to black sure. i don't know how many blogs i've read of people pissed off saying i hate that ending i can't believe that they don't explain whether he's in a dream or not and it's like that is not you're missing the entire point the point well, is to question your reality exactly. not and, to know and, and i think the reason why someone like a really scott has uh maintained and flourished uh is that he understands changing audiences and you know adjust his vision accordingly but you know directors are no longer the the grand poobahs that once were it's all showrunners now Mm -hmm. right and you know and uh, there's a famous story of uh a guy who's walking through a lot and i think it was the paramount lot and uh, i won't say who it is but he's he's a well-known writer and uh, not a writer for film uh, but a well-known social critic and he walks by a table outside the executive dining room, and there's a bunch of guys who are obviously young execs, probably junior vice presidents. And one of them stands up and says, all right, everybody, fuck the director, toast. And they'll go, yeah, fuck the director. And that type of thing to me is chilling because there's always been, you know, the bottom line in the industry has always been the bottom line. But what has radically changed is that the industry used to cater to the audience and you know and there were so many different ways of doing it. you had romances you had thrillers you had you know like just throw away like grungy little movies that turned into film noirs you know there was such a variety and then of course tv sucked away all that because then all of a sudden you've got that but now and i uh, there's a wonderful book i can recommend called the big picture and it just came out, and uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah. it's a wonderful There's a documentary or a faux documentary on the same book called uh, The Big Picture. It's uh, from 1997. It's a, 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 a reported variety, and he takes the moment when Sony got hacked during the making of the picture about Kim Jong Un. Mm-hmm. You know the assassination, the interview, the interview. and uh, he uh, he because all of that went all of that went viral and was all released. Uh, he was able to use this as his starting point, and he explains everything that has happened to Hollywood in the last 20 years. And it is an important book. Wow. It talks about the birth of Netflix. It talks about why the tentpole movies happened. It talks about the whole thing with Disney. It talks about how Disney went from being like kind of a second-rate thing to suddenly realizing it had all these brand names that they could remake 
as you know live action films and then slowly bringing this and that and this and that and then it talks about the complete extinction of the mid medium budget film which is what floated the industry for so long it it wasn't the low budget movies it wasn't the big budget movies it was everything in between and now they no longer do that and so the indies have had to take up the slack and but uh, it's really a fascinating read and it shows that the director with the exception of Jim Cameron Ridley Scott and um, Christopher Nolan uh, essentially oh and Steven Spielberg you know there's only four directors now who can get a picture made everyone else is secondary they're now second-class citizens and that is a reality that's a fact so it's fascinating for someone uh, like me who has spent their entire life you know both immersed in working in and reading about uh to see this thing evolving and becoming less and less audience mm -hmm. friendly mm -hmm. so i i was gonna wait till later but this is exact we're exactly on topic so i have to ask you this question uh when we've considered reaching out to denis villeneuve and trying to interview him which you know he's super busy he's filming dune so we haven't had any success did there. he start shooting I, I don't know. I if think he, he has was prepping yet. last I heard. Yeah, right. right. But yeah. nonetheless, you know, his agent was like, you'll have to rely on previous interviews. He's too busy, et cetera, which is yeah. fine. But from the get go, I wanted, you know, he, he's a he, marvelous person. By the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I thought if I guy. had if I only had 20 seconds oh, and yeah. I got to ask him one question, this would be the question I would ask him. And so I want to uh, We spoke for an hour and a half. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah. I'd like to propose this question to you, be, sure. being the Hollywood insider and the veteran that you are, uh, because this is the most mind blowing thing to us. And I think we've talked about it a lot in terms of 2049. So seeing the differences in the budgets when we compare 2019 to 2049, the production costs, the overages, all the restrictions that we know from, uh, you know, going over budget in the first movie. Do you know or who do you think was the main person responsible for the creation of what some of us really call a miracle, which is this beautiful artistic movie that favored overall the process, the art, and it really seems to us just kind of, and to most fans, doing it right. Hampton and Denny. Really? Oh, yeah. Because arguably it was at the cost of not making as much revenue by making it two hours and 45 minutes, by making it rated. You know, they made all these decisions that were going to make a better it movie was longer, in terms of art. yeah. Right, but it was not. People that were putting money in had to know. They do all that, right? I mean, they the have. The shooting script is out there online. Yeah, we, yeah, 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 we've read it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so and, you, and for those uh, who have not uh, and are curious, it, there's really nothing um, exciting or uh, special uh, of the stuff that was cut. It was mostly just continuations of scenes that you've mm -hmm. already seen. So, you know, just a little bit more of what was already out there. Right. Uh, but I think, you know, I, Denny, Denny is like, you know, a hardcore, passionate Blade Runner fan. Yeah, we see and, that. And, uh, you know, his heart and soul is in that picture. Mm -hmm. But Den he's also a very particularized kind of filmmaker. And uh, if I'm, I, I very much want to do a book about his uh, entire career right now at this point. You know? Yeah, he's becoming my favorite director. Well, I mean, um, with the exception of The Prisoners, which I find a little... Um, really? Yeah, Prisoners to me is also kind of a stunt movie. It's like, you know, it, it's dark, and I get the idea of the fact that, you know, the revenge thing, mm -hmm. you know, and going south and having the wrong person, etc. Hope I didn't spoil Prisoners, everybody. <laughs> Spoiler um, But uh, I, 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 the craft of it and the his command of the camera 
his command of space, his command of mood, his command of the performances can't be faulted. I just found it a little shallow. Um, but uh, that's the only one. Now, I loved Arrival. A lot of people oh, think Arrival Arrival's is so amazing. Oh, Arrival's some, yeah, you know, and I'd read Arrival the story. makes me cry every the time. The story I of see your it. life, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Tim Chang. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing motion picture. And, you know, it was so well cast. You know, Amy Adams, who is probably one of the best portrayers of melancholic intelligence out there you know mm-hmm. she can really and but she's also i mean she played what cinderella remember <laughs> in the mm-hmm. disney movie and she was great in that you know um but no uh, i think that uh, his passion uh, the director's passion and hampton you know hampton's the guy you know we always forget the poor writer you know but there's not it's there's it's not by uh, accident that pale fire is in there in 2049 that's hampton hampton is a literary literate man and you know and it's a continuation of blade runner blade runner was a william burroughs you know novel uh, which is very funny there's a story about that that most people don't know is that it was andre norton who was a uh, actually a woman uh, who wrote uh, you know a lot of golden age science fiction books uh, blade runner is of course about a feature society where doctors are outlawed and uh, it's about a smuggling in of instruments and they're called Blade Runners because scalpels and things like that and there was a man who wanted to invest in a film of that and went to Burroughs and said write the screenplay and Burroughs took the money and never did and there was all this kind of like um, I won't say litigation maybe there was but you know there was a lot of bad news about that and then Burroughs turned around and turned it into a short novel which was rather cheeky of him. But Hampton, being a well-read man and a cultured man, uh, listens to a lot of classical music and, you know, is very well-read. Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that uh, Blade Runner had the Burroughs reference and now Nabokov, you know, in Pale Fire. And Pale Fire is all about the same story that 2049 is. If anyone has read Pale Fire, you know, it's an odd book. You know, there's a 999-long canto poem that's in the middle of it that's supposedly written by a guy named Shade, uh, who has uh, had a near-fatal heart attack and has been going through life trying to figure out the meaning of life and all this type of thing, and who he all is. And then he suddenly realizes towards the end of it, it's not about that. It's about living life. And Pale Fire is Kay's favorite book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And if you think about the parallels in the story, because he's on this quest to discover who, you know, you know, life and all this. And what it's really about is him, you know, being in the moment. He should have, you know, realized, you know, and, and there's that one beautiful, beautiful moving. And it's all Ryan Gosling and it's all Denny. It's all Roger Deakins cinematography when Kay is like just completely dejected and he comes across the giant pink joy, mm-hmm. you know, and here's this, you know, actually this thing and he's a thing if you want to you know be you know technical about it uh who is uh you know just like this generic sex doll product and the look on his face when she goes back away from him pink joy and when he takes the bandage off and that's the moment you can see it in his eyes when it's not only revenge but he takes control of his own destiny mm-hmm. he has spent the entire movie trying to prove that he's human that maybe that you know something 
like so wonderful because his life is not wonderful at all. It's horrific, you know. His only companion is a projection, a hologram, and if the artificial, he's treated like slime by everyone. He's got a dirty job, you know, and then uh, they take that away from him. Yeah, they take everything away from him. They take everything, and that's the moment, you know, when you see in his eyes, you can see it in Gosling. Gosling is wonderful in that Mm -hmm. film. A lot of people say it's a one-note performance. Boring. Oh, oh no. bullshit! Oh, no. Just, don't you know anything about acting? Right. <laughs> what Gosling does with his eyes? Oh, that and, entire and, and movie his is body. Incredible. And you know he's no, he's you know Ryan Gosling has gets gets slapped. I think a lot because of the Notebook, because he you know he was in this sweepy you know like sugary overly you know give you diabetes you know <laughs> romantic drama thing. Uh, but he is so talented. Did, did you ever see Lost River? Very few people yes, know about that. I've seen Lost That's River. his directorial yes. debut. Boy, oh. it's a southern. But well, it's, it's a Detroit Gothic. Yeah. You know, I think it's and, and it's so dark. It's unbelievable. You know, and he wrote it too. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, you know, it's he's got it's marvelously cast and marvelously Gorgeous. directed. It's yeah, and it's wonderfully. Yeah. And but you know, it's just too fucking weird for most people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I love that picture, and I've loved Gosling, you know, forever. When I I saw him in um well uh the nice guys do you remember the nice yeah guys? i love He's that so i thought it was hilarious funny. he plays this doofus yeah you know, that was can, so funny <laughs> you know and so he can and he's been acting since he was a child right you know and he's and everyone loves him you know and he's hyper intelligent mm-hmm. and again you know just um it's it's really wonderful to see you know that type of talent connect with someone with denny's passion and commitment and own talent and there are so many moments in 2049 that i'll always remember like when k is in his peugeot spinner and he's coming back to the police headquarters mm-hmm. and you see you know the city and it's dark mm-hmm. it's almost completely dark except for the canyons where they have you know the adverts and if you'll remember in 2019 everything was lit and if you think about it it makes sense because 30 years in the future all of their energy resources are really gone south and there's more and more people and who knows, maybe they're in candlelight or maybe maybe Wallace makes some kind of synthetic whale oil that they use in oil lamps, you know. But And also, as someone who has been in Mexico City, I saw the location shots of the aerial shots when he's going in. There's a mm-hmm. couple of inserts in there which are actual, you know, uh, aerial shots of Mexico City. And, you know, it's just so well thought yeah. out, you know, and it's so, it's intensely emotional. But it's it it teeters on the edge of solipsism. It's almost so self-involved with itself that it might feel hermetic and it might keep people out. Certain audience members that you got to go with it, you know, from the moment and from the moment that I've seen it so many times now, and I've seen it with I saw it in San Francisco in early October, just before it came out. I was invited to to do an opening and a talk uh, for the, I think it's called the San Francisco Bay Science Fiction Society, something like that, but they're an old, old group, you know? And I even, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll even go further, I'll tell you something. I'm fortunate enough in my life to have some good friends. And you know what? For any of you people out there who feel lost, and I'm not gonna be a guru, because God knows I'm the last person you wanna listen to. <laughs> but in my life, I have learned when I was younger, I always resisted the cliches. I always didn't think it was really about the things they say. Friends are more important than wealth. Good deeds are more important than bad. Being a good person is better than being... I said, oh, fuck all that. Well, you people don't know anything. It's a hostile, violent, dog-eat-dog world. You'd better do what you have to do to survive. Wrong. 
you want to if you want to have a full rich life trust other people find people who you can be friends with being friends means fighting sometimes but just be open you know really treasure what you've got because that's what's most important Hi, this is Philip Mitchell, and I'm the producer of Trial by Stone, the Dark Crystal Podcast Network. If you're a fan of the 1982 classic Jim Henson film, we have a lot of shows on offer to listen to. With Trial by Stone, The Gathering Songs, and The Dark Crystal Minute all part of the network. With the new series Age of Resistance coming soon to Netflix, it's a fantastic time to be a fan of The Dark Crystal, and hope you can give our podcasts a listen. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, just search for Dark Crystal Podcast. Well, I will say that I've learned a lot from other people in my life, too, that over time and overall, good people attract good people. So yes. I think that's a reflection of your character but as don't well. don't be stupid. Right. Keep your street <laughs> smarts. And you know sure. what? You know what, kids? And I never say this. Get out there and get hurt. That's part of it, too. Mm-hmm. Don't think that you're going to be able to cocoon yourself against life's slings and arrows. I don't care what you do. It's got, life, life has a habit of biting you in the ass big time when you least expect it. And right. it's better to go and get hurt early. <laughs> get, get your heart broken when you're 20, 25. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, hurt feelings, I can kind of jump on that a little bit. And we've touched on this a little bit. but um, We know. digressed into my upcoming new philosophical venture if you will send in five dollars to my Facebook page <laughs> I will tell you all the secrets of life and unlock uh, potential within you I think you might have something there <laughs> I, th- I think I'm being sardonic <laughs> so uh, we recently discussed the uh, love scene from the original Blade Runner in our, oh, on our podcast scene. we did, well yeah the love hate rape scene you know there's lots of titles to it uh, I was giving it the most positive spin in this particular <laughs> title but um, you know, and, and I think an that odd moment. It is oh, it so is. Odd. And I think over time, right over the last 35 years of, of watching this film, you know, I'm sure we've all gone through it being at different points in our lives and different ages at the different times when we've watched it, where it, you know, the movie itself impacts us differently. And certainly that scene has impacted me differently growing up. And so, you know, we're in this post sort of me too movement in 2018, right? Which and a lot of us feel that way. And a lot of it's affected, especially Hollywood. So we're really right on topic. I just hope it lasts. Us, yeah, we do too. Um, so I wanted to ask you kind of, or we wanted to ask you, um, how do you see this scene now at, at this point based on reflection? And, um, you know, it seems that in conversations I've had and the women that we invite, you know, we made sure to invite women on that show so that we could have a kind of well-rounded conversation. Sure. Oh, I've listened to your podcast. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and um, Hey, women, uh, duh, women are like 50% of the people on this planet. <laughs> uh. So I, I, I felt the main point of contention was really in people's, uh, um, that people are most of the time have a hard time separating the scene in context with these flawed characters, which they are in different ways, and the same scene in a real life scenario. I, th- I felt oh, that yeah. that was my main butting heads with people, where I was like, yeah. "Look, I'm not saying that I would like I would not do something if I saw okay. this happen in an alleyway, right?" But what's your opinion on on the scene now? You would in an alleyway? No, no, I'm saying I, I would not. <laughs> I'm saying I would not let this happen if oh, I saw it happen oh, in an alleyway oh, oh. in real life. But in the movie, to me, it makes sense because of the characters and because of the context, etc. You'd be you know? surprised how often people don't step in. Right. Um, yeah. I as I as I touched on, uh, I grew up in a very violent culture. Uh, by the time I was ten, I'd seen many corpses. I'd seen shootings, I'd seen drownings, I'd seen suicides, I'd seen children 
cast aside because they were no longer able to work for the pedophile networks in the Philippines, which were big before Bangkok took over. And people still go to Manila mm -hmm. for that kind of thing. I've seen the worst in humanity, right? So you, there's a certain tendency to romanticize or what I call it, John Wayne, imaginary scenarios. For instance, this ridiculous idea of arming teachers in classrooms. Right. I have, I'll tell you from, and anyone in combat will tell you the same thing. Um, if there is like a mass shooting, two things happen. People freeze or they run like hell. They completely panic. There's no one that sits there unless they have been through some kind of military training or they have the certain kind of uh, law enforcement uh, hardcore training, which is a completely different mindset. But look, what, look what happened at, uh, you know, the Florida, the guy who was there, his policeman, he froze. You know, now he's made excuses since then, which, you know, may or may not be true. But unfortunately, he's always going to be known as the guy who didn't go in and do something, right? And I have empathy for that man. I know what's really going on. So we're talking real life as opposed to movie life. They're completely different. Right. Within the context of 2019, Harrison Ford described Deckard to me as damaged goods. He said, this guy is really damaged. And that's how he approached the construction of the character. We also have to remember that a lot of these replicants are used as pleasure units, right? Which presupposes that there's already a culture in place. Well, Pris is, you know, the obvious one. Uh, and also, uh, you know, Zora, Joanna Cassie, although she's both, which I always love. She's on screen for so few minutes and yet makes such a tremendous impact. Yeah, she's a hell of a character and an and, actress. And, yeah. Oh, she ha and she's still out there working. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm proud to call her a good friend. Um, it's uh, There are two things going on for me in that. Um, he has... Uh, felt for the first time in a long time, whether you take he's a human or a replicant, the emotion of guilt and shame when he outs her because she just collapses in front of him. And I love the way he's so awkward, Deckard's reactions to that. And he has really hurt this person. And then when she comes back and she saves his life and she is being they're playing close together on the piano and she's taking care of him and there's all this tenderness and then suddenly she flees. Now, there's all kinds of multiple interpretations that could be going on here. He doesn't want her to go. He's being the aggressive male as opposed to, you know, the, the, the one who is um, the one that we would not in our fantasies like to be. But many times testosterone gets the big head, uh, you know, is uh, ruled by the little head, as they say. Um, so there's all that going on. But there's also the fact that if he is indeed a replicant, he is not familiar with proper, you know, types of things. But he's also damaged. He's also drunk. He's also impulsive. He's a violent guy. He's used to getting what he wants. But it's also his way of getting intimacy, you know? because they've gone through all this and then all of a sudden she's going to leave and you know and it's like god damn it you know and so almost like an argument that turns into a quasi rape and the whole thing about him telling her how to make love is really disturbing yeah. because it's almost like talking to your refrigerator you know a smart refrigerator saying please uh, you know would you uh, extract uh, you know appendage b around uh, my appendage a and you know <laughs> so there's that it's a very very difficult seen to parse. I don't think you can be simplistic about it. Now, does it have some correlations in the real world? Sure. You know, and not in a good way for men, you know.
But what's so odd about it is that the way it's staged is off-putting because there's that hot, hot light coming through the Venetian blinds, which make Harrison Ford look like a monster, mm -hmm. and he's acting like a monster. So there's actually a visual correlation going on there with what the emotional context of that scene is, right? So it's, uh, it's not something that I think that can be easily explained away, but I think it's meant to be disturbing. I don't think it was ever meant to be like a love scene. I don't think Ridley ever wanted to be something that simple. But interestingly enough, after that happens, then seeing all the tension's gone, and he's ready to give his life up for it. So, mm -hmm. you know, now, of course, that's just like the conventions of the genre, right? So... Right. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's one. Did I address what you wanted? Yeah, you did. Thank you. Um, it, it's one of the few times I think, and we were talking about this in the car because we were listening not to the original soundtrack, but to the Esper edition. I don't know if you're oh yeah, of course. With it. It's not my favorite. You know who you're talking? Right. To, of right? course. I just <laughs> don't want to make assumptions. And my second edition, uh, which was only published uh, Future Noir in England, which has the hardcover, which has uh, Rutger Hauer in the Rain. There is about a ten-page. Uh, 30, 40, 50 uh, listing of all of the bootlegs. That oh, that's I, great. Yeah, yeah. Up to 2007. There's many more. And yeah, but the Esper edition is one of my favorites. It's yeah. now, I, I now the can't gold even. standard, yeah. Yeah, I can't even listen to the original soundtrack anymore. I'd rather just listen to the Esper edition. But specifically to that scene, and we were just listening to it in the car, and I replayed it because I was like, man, this is, I'm always looking for this particular point because it's so amazing. And I would encourage our listeners, if they haven't heard it, to go out and look for it. It's on YouTube. Yeah, it's, it's all over the place on the internet. And they play that scene with probably a track that was meant for that scene, but they take out the sort of uh, saxophone love, mm -hmm. uh, which, which kind of puts this overtone of a loving scene on it. And it's not, as Patrick has suggested before, imagine if this scene had like some scary psycho music, how different it would feel. It's not that. It's way more, it's still emotional, but it's way more neutral where it's more melancholy and it yeah. really makes you read, because you can hear their voices, you can hear the conversation and it makes you read the scene completely differently. It's an ambiguous, multi-layered moment. The sequence yeah. is not easy. There's a lot going on in there right. and most of it is off-putting. And you know, it's interesting that they would go there, that Ridley would go there. And he got a lot of pushback even from his producer, Michael Dealey, and Michael Dealey was the man who always had Ridley's back. You always hear about producers who are, you know, really not there to do anything except make sure that the clock you know is ticking and that you know we get that shot in the can so we don't go over budget and all that michael daly was 100,000 percent behind really throughout the entire shoot uh but even he at that moment said I, what are you doing you know right. why are you filming it this way and, yeah i can only and imagine so and of course as uh, sean talks about in the uh, interview which i'm quite proud of uh, mm -hmm. because uh, 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 Proud in the sense that I'm finally able to give Sean's point of view on something that has been so distorted over the years, uh, where she talks about how she had a collapse, a complete collapse after that sequence, and just went, you know, into a complete crying jag. Now, she's an actress, and you know, it's an intense scene, and you know, people get so in the moment that you know, that's a natural reaction. And but she was 24 at the time, I no, think. 21. 21. Super young. Yeah, and uh, also, but then Ridley comes over and says, "Clever girl." And walks away, and I think Ridley thought that she was being manipulative by mm -hmm. doing that, and uh, but she wasn't. And <laughs> Sean goes as she said, "What the hell does that mean?" You right. know, I'm, you know, I'm, and so there was a huge disconnect. Uh, you know, she, uh, Rutger Hauer has some really interesting. Did you read the Rutger Hauer? Mm -hmm. uh, of course, yeah. yeah. Things where he talks about 
what Sean never understood was that she was a doll. She was hired because she was a doll, and they played with her in the movie like she was a doll, mm-hmm. and she never got that. And so I think part of it was inexperience and naivete and a certain lack of toughness and a certain lack of understanding of what the business is about and how much of it can be cruel and how much of it can be superficial and it's all about like let's get it you know and it can be really really tough and uh it's uh different styles of different directors um david cronenberg who i was fortunate enough to meet very early in my own career and uh, got to know him quite well during scanners um, and still, it's been a while since I talked to David, but I still consider him a, a lost friend if you're out there. Um, he uh, will clear the set every time he rehearses and just have the actors. And the actors love David Cronenberg because he's gentle and he's patient and he just, you know, he's very much collaborative. And I think this has been said more than once and by other people than myself, but I think Ridley at that point in his career was not completely comfortable with actors and performers. And uh, he certainly knew how to get a good performance, but now it's completely different. I mean, he's got a he's got a technique now because everything's digital that he can put he he'll put six cameras on right from different angles, shoot one run through, and just let it go and go and go. And he, if you say cut, you don't have to stop everything and reset. They just keep going. And actors love that because right. they can get into the momentum. It's more natural. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so he's grown. So I think that part of the tension you feel in that sequence is also the tension between Harrison and Sean. No, oh, sure. And also between Sean and Harrison and Ridley and the crew. I mean, there's that's one of those moments where I think there was a unexpected revelation of some of the background turbulence that was going on i think there's a bit of that in there i don't want to make too much of it but i would definitely say that that was an ingredient it, it, right and it, and a, in the end something that made it better in the sense that it made it that much more genuine and you could really oh, feel yeah, it I that's, think, right? well there's a lot of deeply emotional moments in blade runner my favorite yeah. is you know people say you know rickers speech and of course it's classic honestly my favorite is when sean cries I have mm-hmm. never seen. I mean, that's devastating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still. Is this which which part? Because she does it a couple. Times. No, when he when she when she's outed and he says you're a replica. Yes. You know, yes. And so so cruelly him. and yeah, and yeah. she just like looks at him and just the tears come out. Those are real tears, by yeah. the way. She's good at crying. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, uh, you know, uh, and obviously Rutgers tears and rain speech. You know, which is so moving. But for me, the moment that the the emotional high point is that when he so cruelly outs her and she's just devastated it's all in her face mm-hmm. she didn't know dialogue mm-hmm. yeah. well I wanted to piggyback on the Sean Young discussion um, in your by in the your... way for those of you who can't see I'm covered in cats <laughs> <laughs> that's okay though I like kitties in your um, <laughs> book uh, when you're talking to her she seems from what I could understand that she didn't understand what was going on like she thought maybe Harrison Ford didn't like her um, or she didn't know and you address that with Harrison Ford you say so what was going on with you and Sean and he's like I don't want to talk about it Um, but at one point he says to you it seems like he was playing off what Ridley was saying to her as opposed to what she was giving him right yeah Um, she was acting through remote control yeah and I can understand that a little bit but there seems to be this based off Sean's interview, this unfinished story. She still doesn't know what happened. She doesn't, she doesn't 
seem to have. She has, in my, and this is only my opinion, because I would never speak to the emotional life of another person, um, even someone I know quite well. Um, in my opinion, uh, she's just never come to grips with it. Uh, it was the, the, you know, she peaked early. And, you know, let's face it, she had a career and, you know, continues to work. And uh, she was just in the alienist. Yes, yeah. amazing. And, uh, but I think uh, she's hurt, resentful, and still confused. Shakes. Me too. I get them bad. <clears throat> Part of the business. I'm not in the business. I am the business. To my way of thinking, she was young. She didn't know she was in way over her head. She went from doing tiny little movies like, you know, Stripes and uh, Jane Austen in Manhattan to this mega budget thing where there's a whole different dynamic at work and she wasn't aware of the protocols. She wasn't aware of uh, a lot of things and she was kind of at sea and there was no time to bring her up to speed, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, really hired her because of her talent and her looks, you know, and she is talented, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, you know, people have said Sean can't act. <laughs> Look at her, you know, look at her in Blade Runner. But look who got that performance out of her. And right. in the midst of all this horrible, you know, horrible stress. So, you know, Sean, um, well, there's an old saying, uh, resentment is the only poison that you drink and hope the other person dies. You know, I wish her, I've always wished Sean nothing but the best. As I say, we've had our own ups and downs. Um, but, you know, I... I, uh, some ghosts haunt people their entire life mm -hmm. and uh, hey my heart was broken by a girl when I was 21 and uh, it's uh, oh my god almost 50 years later and there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't think about her yeah. and I've been happily married for 43 years my right. wife's met her <laughs> right. Right. but thankfully she disappeared from about 1980 <laughs> otherwise I probably wouldn't still be married you know? <laughs> but you know we're all uh, you know we're all vulnerable and that was that moment and, uh, and you know you really feel her vulnerability that comes across in I'm the film yeah like yeah, it's exactly. for me once she but also she switches because when she first comes out she's yes. got that Joan Crawford Poison. kind yeah. of uh, you know yeah um, um, uh, um, a woman who did play Scarlett O'Hara Yes, um, Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee look. And uh, she's the kind of like the smooth, suave, mm -hmm. you know, businesswoman. And then slowly chip, 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 all of that facade gets chipped away, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I'm going to switch gears for just a second and ask you a question I have to ask. I, 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 this is a small technical point, but I had to ask you because of all people you might know. Although we might stump you just because I know it's pretty obscure, but um, we, Patrick and I talked about it in our first tech episode where we talk about the spinners, but you know, again, I have a background in air traffic control and uh, there's a scene that I, of course I didn't notice until the last 10 years of my life when I started working in that business um, in 2019 where the spinner with Gaff and Deckard is landing on top of LAPD. And if you listen in the background, 
um, you can hear an air traffic controller yes. talking them down over the building, you know, and he says uh, on glide path, on course, over landing threshold. Now, what people that aren't in the aviation business might not know is that that is 100% accurate phraseology and very specific to a PAR, uh, precision approach radar, final controller. Someone's done their homework. Even a pilot, like if you randomly had a pilot on set, even a pilot would be hard pressed to get that phraseology accurately. Someone had to know an air traffic controller that was on, somebody that worked on the set. And I was just curious if by chance you knew who that was or no, who knew No, that. but I, I would, everything in Blade Runner ultimately leads back to Ridley Scott. And so in his pursuit of authenticity in the midst of fantasy, uh, you know, that type of... Uh, detail? De- well, but, but, but accurate detail. Accuracy. Uh, you know, is uh, not surprising. The work print uh, opens up with uh, that same air con- uh, uh, traffic control voice talking an anonymous spinner into the Tyrell Pyramid. Oh, wow. And yeah, if you ever go back and look at the work print, you know, that's how it opens. And it's not, you know, uh, it's not that uh, slow, you know, industrial from the Hades landscape into the Tyrell Pyramids into the... Interesting. There's a whole thing as if you're in an anonymous spinner approaching it and you can hear the air traffic controller going on. But no, Ridley was, you know, a, a, you know, uh, there's an old thing that, uh, you know, uh, the devil's in the details. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, what that phrase should be is that God's in the details. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was an unnecessary amount of accuracy. No one would have so noticed. So many people it said, off, Ridley, you know? you're doing so much stuff that's unnecessary right. on this it film. It makes it feel more real, though. <laughs> well, it, it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the model makers says it in um, Dangerous Days. He says we had to add... 25 30 percent detail to these models oh, yeah. because the camera loses so much that to get a hundred percent we had to be at a hundred and you know i think this partially goes back to ridley's um genuflection to stanley kubrick kubrick mm-hmm. was you know uh, whoa that cat opened the door it did the cat we just a cat just <laughs> went and jumped on the handle and pulled the handle down and he's an athlete <laughs> i love it when they do that cats are wonderful a little creepy when in the middle of the night they come and lay on your face. <laughs> right. You think about all those claws um, and those needle-sharp, mouth-shredding teeth. Um, no, uh, yeah, you know, Ridley has always, like, uh, just, uh, just uh, Kubrick is in awe. And Kubrick, of course, you know, was someone who didn't have a color or fabric on a set that hadn't gone through about 87 different iterations. You mm-hmm. know? So... Same thing. I think Ridley uh, probably uh, has been influenced by his respect for Kubrick in that respect. And so, and Blade Runner certainly shows that, you know. But but you know what I told Ridley the last time I saw him? I said, no, well, the second to last time. I said, you know, Ridley, I said, you get knocked a lot because, uh, you know, you'll do a good film and a bad film. And I said, hey, Howard Hawks did a good film and a bad film. John Ford did a good film and a bad film. He knew exactly what I meant. I said, you know, you're you're a, a jobbing director who has, happens to have the best eye in Hollywood. I said, but you know, you're in the business of making movies for studios one after another, just like they did during the golden age. And that's exactly what he does. And so in, in that respect, you know, it's not like somebody who only has made five or six movies. I mean, Ridley's past 20 now, you know, mm-hmm. and he just keeps cranking them out, you know. But look at what he comes up with. All the Money in the World, which no one saw, is, is really a good picture. It's one of his best movies. No one saw it because, you know, of all the problems that happened. But except for Michelle Williams, which is odd because she has a 
That's the only bad performance. Well, not bad. It's the only... Um, I, I wasn't convinced by her character. And she is such an excellent talent. She's a superb talent. Um, but all the money in the world, you know, like he did that very quickly. Oh, have you heard the story when he went to uh, uh, the studio and uh, after the, you know, Kevin Spacey thing and they, he went to them and he said, I can replace Kevin Spacey in two weeks. And they said, you're out of your mind. You know, you're, the picture's locked. It's got to go. He says, just watch. And he did. Hmm. And if wow. you see it, there's only one or two uh, Oliver Reed head-pasted a la Gladiator shots. It is Christopher Plummer in huge sets, you know, on location. I just, geez, you know, Ridley, no one would ever question Ridley Scott's, you know, techniques or facility or abilities, you know. I mean, he's an amazing guy mm -hmm. yeah. in so many different levels. Very true. I have a question, uh, or... Uh, Maybe, uh, and I'm not saying that to suck up, Ridley. I really mean it. <laughs> you know, often I, you know, I hate that because that's one of the reasons I got up. I, I was in all this for years and years and years, and I didn't mean to interrupt. This, no, one, this okay. one will be short. That's okay. Um, maybe <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my character defects. I love the sound of my own voice. Um, at least I'm honest about it. Um, that uh, uh, see, now I lost the thread. <laughs> Where was I going to go? What were we talking about before that? Uh, we were talking about Ridley Scott and shoot, all the money in the world, the and the world. Uh, no one would question. Oh no, 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 no! About sucking up is what no. we were really talking about. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know that's one of the reasons I get out of the studios. My soul started to get scraped, just scraped. I mean, I remember the day that I was in New York City. I'd been working for studios for 15 years. I was there to do an uh, event over a few days. And I walked into the event, and I had a guy from the local field office in New York who was doing the usual reaming. And I, and I just said, I've had it. If I keep this up, I'm going to end up like so many people I've seen already in this business. And I went into independent production. And I started to produce TV shows in Japan, I, uh, my, my company. And a Japanese company did five years worth of television shows for NHK, Japan Satellite Broadcasting, TV Asahi. Um, I helped reconstruct Bertolucci's uh, The Last Emperor, the director's mm -hmm. cut. I was the first person to, uh, well, not the first person, but I was uh, the co-producer and co-writer of the first joint Soviet-American animated film, which we made in Moscow in 1988. I did a lot of stuff that a lot of people don't realize. And, and I also decided that I wanted to be a bit plebeian and prove on movies. And I started as an executive. And it just it got to a point where it was just killing me. My, you know, honestly, what little soul I have you know, is being just shredded. And I said, I can't do it anymore. If I, you, know, you walk away from a lot of money. You walk away from a lot of opportunities. But I'm, I think I did the right thing. And also, I've always, you know, written books. I've been a writer. I never tried to write. Well, I can't say never. I had a friend who, we had two scripts at uh, Paramount that almost went as features. And uh, one, uh, we had Kate Winslet and uh, who's, uh, what's her name? Uh, Natalie Portman, who signed on uh, purely on the uh, script. And, you know, but as all, they almost all of them do that one south. Uh, so I've, I've really, I honestly have done it all. And, um, 
it just fascinates me that the little boy who was seven years old in Sangley Point in the Philippines watching the mole people, <laughs> this like crappy universal bee fixture, you know, about things that crawled up from the sand and grabbed you down the sand pit and I'd go home at night and look under the bed, God damn it, where's the mole people? You know, that that little boy wound up working with people like Ridley Scott, Paul Verhoeven, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, it just amazes me. Mm -hmm. And came out of it happy, you know, and grateful. End of digression. Have you... Uh, Hitchcock is one of my favorite directors. Oh, mine too. Uh, one of my all-time favorite films is Vertigo. Oh, Have you ever noticed... I remember when Vertigo was like, everybody hated Vertigo. I yeah. saw it when it first came out. Uh, I it was like eight years old. I, was eight. I saw it when I was eight as well. And I, it's hypnotic. It, it was. It's it, like, it's somewhat like Blade Runner. Yeah. It just was, sucks you in. And, well, that's and that's where I'm going with this. Do you notice the parallels between these films? Uh, have you noticed, especially now with 2049, where you have this cop um, who's, sort of, who's sort of retired... He's put on a job that he he's doesn't damaged. want to be on. Um, he meets this woman who isn't really who she... It's a little bit of an invert where she isn't who she says she is. But then Three he, times over. Yeah, yeah. And then he meets her again later on, but it's not her. But he wants to recreate her. Yeah. And he's introduced there's to her again. There's a bit just of necrophilia like, in there. And, <laughs> you and, know. and the scene where... Uh, Judy or Madeline, Judy mm -hmm. as Madeline, mm -hmm. walks out to meet him. And then you have 2049 where there's Rick Deckard meeting a version of this yeah. woman he had yeah. lost again. Yeah, but that's an interesting. Parallels. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's funny because Vertigo has gone from being, as someone who's watched its reputation fall and fall and then rise, it's gone from like being ignored to being an aberration to being oh slightly to well you know there's all those rare projection shots of the you know James Stewart endlessly driving around the streets of San Francisco to the number one AFI. film yeah, uh, yeah exactly yeah. you know so it's interesting to watch that happen it but in some ways you're right you know it is uh, I would say uh, the parallels that you mentioned uh, you know have some weight I would say probably I would lean more towards of an interpretation of the the approach towards mood mm -hmm. and immersion and, mm -hmm. and, and, and psychological undercurrents that are very disturbing. Yeah. You know, Jimmy Stewart's not a nice guy. Yeah. You know, he starts as kind of a, you know, but, you know, I mean, he, he, what does he do? You know, he goes to spy on somebody's wife, you know, which is the unsavory part of, you know, the private detective thing. Right. And he's, you know, uh, he's damaged right at the beginning because, you know, he didn't mean it, but he's inadvertently caused the death of someone. And, mm -hmm. and so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a creepy movie, right. you know, and then Hitchcock, you know, <laughs> Hitchcock was, <laughs> he was an interesting guy. Um, I've met Tippi Hedren and I worked with Melanie Griffith on Cherry 2000 and uh, when we had downtime and that was not a pleasant experience either. Uh, but we, you know, I would ask her all kinds of stuff, and I knew about this movie called Roar because I'd seen it when it first came out, and it just recently got re-released when she was a kid, well, a teenager. They live with lions in the house, you know, Tippi Hedren and the children and the father. You know, this uh, nature preserve they have, and Roar is like that's this right. I've seen semi of her Oh yeah, with and those she lions. oh yeah, yes. she gets bitten at one point. Oh, the movie is out. You can find it now really? on YouTube. Okay. Yeah, watch it. <laughs> so, but you know, and and I said. Uh, do you remember anything about Hitchcock? She goes, yeah, I remember when I went to the set of the birds and, oh, no, I'm sorry, Marnie, and he gave me a little miniature coffin and inside was a, you know, him. And I thought, 
even as a girl, I went, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. <laughs> wow. yeah. And of course, that's, you know, the black humor of, you know, of an adult, you know, but right, not right. really understanding maybe, or maybe like, you know, like, like there was a sadistic side, mm-hmm. right. you know, yeah, to for Hitchcock. Sure. Um, well, we don't, I have one last question for you. We don't want to uh, take too much advantage of uh, your time. You've been really generous with it, and we really appreciate it. Um, I just hope everyone's not bored to death because we've been going on forever. Oh, I don't think oh, so. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I did want to ask you, since a lot of us are looking forward to it, can you give us any kind of preview on the um, on the chapters that you're working on uh, online on Future Noir in terms of 2049? Yes. Um, uh, it's going to take some time because uh, I'm here in Los Angeles throughout June, uh, but then I'm going to be going back uh, to another place where I'm going to be actually finally be able to address this. Uh, I'm going to be pulling uh, varying chapters out of things that have not been seen in the past, things from the second edition that people haven't been aware of. Um, I'm going to do a brand new critique of 2049, and awesome. which I've been working on for some time now. Um, and again, you know, uh, although I see flaws, I think it's a marvelous tribute. I don't think anyone could have done a better job, even though it's a completely different tonally motion picture. I think it's an honorable attempt, and I think it's well worth anyone's time. But where I would give Blade Runner maybe three and a half stars, because all films not quite are perfect, I'd give uh, a 2049 maybe three and a quarter. You know, it's just slightly different. But then again, you can never capture lightning in a bottle twice, right? Right. And it's very rare. And everyone talks about The Empire Strikes Back being better than, you know, Star Wars. I disagree. I think Star Wars is the purer of the two. I think that's straight from the heart. And I think Empire, the franchise, itis mentality or it ought to sit in it's certainly slicker and more entertaining and it's got things in it that everybody loves but i remember 1980 sitting down and going oh shit the writing's on the wall yeah you know and uh and now you know star wars is a corporate religion mm-hmm. i get people get very angry when i say that because and i understand it's true know. yeah as a fan they have, they have a very passionate i know fan base i know sure. and i hey i'm i'm a big fan i've seen them all i've seen like you know the clone wars the you know cartoon series you know i've I, you know, I've got like little action figures around. I still have my Yoda from the first one, you know, in the box, you know, the green guy with the hair and all that, you know. So, you know, I'm a fan too. But I I do, uh, I I don't respect, um, well, it's all about, you know, making money. At the bottom line, it's about making money. And I remember when I saw Forbidden Planet when I was six years old, you know, and that was brand new. And I was blown out. That was I touched on. So it was 2001, right? So it was, uh, you know, a lot of other films I can tell you about in that period of time. A lot of golden age of international art cinema, which I saw many, many pictures of, like Fellini and Godard and Truffaut and Antonioni. And, you know, I'm very familiar with that. And, and the people that are out there now, you know, the global talents. But I really vigorously object to people uh, not understanding when they're being taken advantage of you know i mean i love these movies but people they're movies go out and get a life Mm -hmm. you know shatner remember (laughs) (laughs) you know and i everybody's going to be angry at me but you know i just saw solo twice you know yeah you know i had problems with it but yeah i did too and it wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be and the buzz you know was just horrible on it i didn't like the second star wars the new one i thought that was dull really oh yeah yeah i didn't like it at all i didn't like seven or eight but i did like Rogue One. I thought Rogue One was very Oh, Rogue fun. One was great. Yeah, yeah Rogue I think One that's had my favorite modern Star Wars. Movie yeah, exactly, sure. you know, and it, it it went the right way. You know, it tried to be different, you know. 
All right. Well, it's very obvious that the three of us could sit here and talk all day long, especially as long as Paul is willing to sit here with us. <laughs> one question, though. Sure. Were you uh, were you ever on set for Twenty Forty Nine? No, I wasn't. Okay. Uh, never invited. And uh, like Michael Dealey, uh, who you would think would be the first person they'd contact, they never contacted him. Yeah. It's very interesting. The whole I know we discussed this a on shame. the phone. Oh, it's more than a shame. <laughs> the, with the legacy of 2019 and the documentary and all, and your connection to it, I am more than shocked that yeah, 2019, that carpet wasn't rolled out for you guys. For no, everyone. no, no. But that's Hollywood. You know, you learn to expect that. Yeah. yeah. You know, there is no loyalty uh, to a certain extent in Hollywood. There are no soft edges. I yeah. mean, soft rounded you know right, right. warm parts yeah. you know and besides you know i understand it was their picture you know they wanted to make it theirs i think they may have benefited uh from people who had been there before and might have had a little bit of expertise in terms of saying well you know i follow this thing for a long time and still have my finger on the pulse but there's ego involved and yeah. you know and there's like you know mine and you know i, I get it you know that's fine you know it's their right. picture you know but yeah i would have been nice but on the other hand as i say i was uh through varying means, uh, you know, uh, I I, I kind of knew what was going on for a long time. Well, nonetheless, we're excited to see the uh, addition to the book that comes out online, and I'm very eager to read it myself. That's Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner. It's uh, by HarperCollins. Uh, it's still out in uh, hard copy, and uh, it's uh, unfortunately riddled with typos. That are, Please believe me, it's not my fault. Uh, <laughs> I spent a long time proofreading it, and I sent it in, and apparently they sent it off-site for the final pass, and for some reason it came back the way it is. So I do apologize. I know that's one of the things that people have been complaining about. I absolutely agree. It pisses me off more than it. Put every person who hates every typo in that book together and one-tenth of one percent is the anger I feel about it. <laughs> you know, uh, but we'll fix that. That's already been fixed, by the way. That has already all been cleaned up. And um, so, you know, when it does go back online uh, and is replaced, there'll be a slightly expanded chapter on 2049. There'll be um, all the cleanups, but uh, the stuff that we're going to do that is the supplemental stuff is going to be there's going to be a lot and I'm going to have to job it out and I got to I mean uh, uh, string it out and figure out because I just don't want to dump it and I got to figure out which format I mean you know uh, right now I'm, I'm kind of being pushed and pulled by publishers and by by web sites and by you know doing it on YouTube or doing it you know and ca I mean there's all different ways I could do it right so I'm just trying to get the model to get sure, it right now sure. too because I'm a one-man operation right you know and well, you do a lot. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, we're uh, we're very excited for that. And uh, yeah, in closing, I, I'll, I'll start by again extending my thanks to you for coming out and speaking with us. We're we're flattered that you listen to the podcast. Yes. That's really oh, exciting great. to us. It's a good one. Um, and I'd like to extend uh, Patrick's thanks as well. He certainly would have loved to be here um, and and would have loved to meet you. But you know, maybe maybe in the future we'll maybe have an next opportunity. Yeah. So yeah. Thank, thank you, you again. so much for oh, coming thank you. And I want to thank all the people who supported the book over the years and the wonderful. Uh, the readers and also the uh, academics who've uh, taught it in schools and uh, it's uh, taken on a life of its own and uh, it's it's really a, a life's fantasy of mine as someone who's written about films and watched films his entire life to be able to meld the two of them together in something that seems to have struck a chord with people yeah, it's and I find that just so humbling and just so rewarding just amazing thanks guys and girls thank you <laughs>
To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group. 